0: Um, The passage continues from last week in Daniel 3, uh, verses 13 to 26. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego— And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you with that extra hour of sleep that I'm sure some of you got. If you have children under the age of five, you learned that God has designed us with an internal clock that cannot be messed with because my kids got up at the same old time to them. So anyways, if, if you're one of us under, you know, raising kids under five, like I'm with you. So if, if, you, if I can stay awake during this, you can too is what I'm saying basically. So anyways, (laughs) I heard a story earlier this week. I was listening to a podcast and they were interviewing a guy and uh, he he was older in life and he was looking back on his teen years and he was sharing a time when he was 14 or 15 years old and he was out on the soccer field and he snapped his ankle. And this uh, obviously had some pretty significant implications for his life. And the days following this accident, uh, as a matter of fact, the doctors were discussing whether or not they were going to actually need to amputate his entire leg. It had grown that severe. It turns out at the end of it all that they didn't need to amputate his leg. It didn't go that far. But as you could probably imagine, if you've ever had any type of injury, you can imagine that he wasn't actually able to ever walk back onto a soccer field the same as he ever had. More than that, he had built so much of his identity, his value, his self-worth was rooted in who he believed he was as a star athlete. So this was a big deal. It wasn't only that his ankle that was broken, right? In the way that he saw it, his life was actually broken. And from this, he began to slip into a depression. And at first, it was just this, you know, I've got to go through the rehabilitation. And then it turned into, I'm never going to make that team again. And then it turned into, I don't think I'm ever going to play soccer or any type of sports the same way again. And his depression grew and grew. And he began to spiral more and more down into this pit of depression. He grew up in a place, his household and all that was was the kind of message or the kind of culture where the idea was, you'll just pull yourself up, like, you'll be okay, you'll make it through this. Right, But that was never satisfying enough to him. So he had gone to church, and uh, had gone to church for a lot of the time, and had heard his pastor talking week after week after week about this idea of come as you are. There's no problem too big. No problem that that can ever keep you from the help that God is able to give you. And so he finally got up enough courage, and he went and started talking to his youth pastor about this. And essentially, he was greeted with the response like, whoa, I've never heard about anything like this serious before. Um, I'll pray for you. And as he retells the story, he, he basically said it was no different than the pastor saying like, "Whoa, I don't even know what to say, so like all the best with that. From this, it turned into, his depression turned into him having uh, suicidal thoughts. And as he tells the story, he tells of a time when he lives in Southern California, he drove up to the top of a hill and he's sitting there and he's on his phone Googling the most painless ways to take his own life because he just kept spiraling, spiraling down and down. He felt abandoned. He felt like he was on his own. He felt like there was no rescue. Even when he called for help, help wasn't offered to him, right? And so we maybe don't have that exact same story, but if if we took a moment to just reflect on our lives, we probably have some area where there's been pain, where there's been suffering, where we felt like we're all alone, where we felt like there's no escape from our situation. Even if you take into consideration the hashtag MeToo campaign, That is all over the media right now, right? Every day we're learning about more and more women who are talking about being taken advantage of, assaulted, uh, abused by other men in positions of power, pretty much. And in some of these cases, it's like 10 or 20 or 30 years ago when the initial abuse took place. What does that say? That means that there are people who have been living in a prison of silence for so long because they haven't felt like they can come out and tell someone else about it. They felt on their own. Like no one would understand them. Or they would say, just pull yourself up, don't worry about that, that's just show business, that's how it goes. They feel this, like, such a huge pain and burden on them. I I spent a lot of years in youth ministry, a little bit over 10 years. And even in that 10 year time frame of working with students, I began to notice the shift in the way that questions were being asked. And so, uh, you know, as we talk about being abandoned or being on our own and all these things, one of the questions we might legitimately ask is like, where's God in the middle of all this? Teenagers are often struggling with this question, not only where is God, but is there even a God? And so 10 years ago, I remember talking with young people and the questions they were asking, well, if God is good, then why did he allow that tsunami to take place? Right, or if God is good, then, and if God is loving, then, then why would it even be possible that the, some people would spend an eternity separated from him? And these are very important questions, ones that you've probably wrestled with yourself or maybe are beginning to. But if we are noticing something, these are impersonal questions, right? These are questions about where is God in relation to the entire world. In the last number of years, the last two, three years, I noticed a shift in these kinds of questions which were the same idea but have turned into now, where was God when I was cutting? Or, or, or where was God when my parents were going through that divorce? Right? There's a personalization that's attached to these questions now. And from these observations, from these interactions, I've learned a few things. One thing is that you are never to compare one person's pain and suffering to another person's pain and suffering. We, we ought to eliminate the language from our, our mouths. Well, I've been through much worse than that. It's true. You may have been through something that was worse, but you can't define how much something hurt someone. We, we can't do that. And we can tell of other people's stories, but we can't tell or speak into uh, the, the, the unique experience that they had in the middle of it, right? Another thing I learned is that there are a number of people, a surprising amount of people who follow that philosophy of, well, it's not that bad. This too shall pass. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're going to make it. It's okay. You know, we're going to, joy comes with the morning. And like all of that is, well, okay, you can build a biblical case for that, but really, is that satisfying? Or does that just leave us wanting? Right, does that leave us feeling like, no, there's more, and I don't feel like, this, this, I, I, it doesn't sound like there's enough to this. Even still, there were another group of people, I had legitimate conversations, where people would say, well, that's the problem with this generation. This generation is a me-centered generation. All they think about is themselves. So of course they're not worried about what God is doing in the midst of the rest of the world. Of course it's only about them and their lives. To which I was just like appalled that people would even say this. But I'd often have to speak back and say, like, isn't that the question you want the answer to as well? If we're honest, we want to know where is God in the middle of my situation? Is he even here? Is he even listening? Has he abandoned me? Where, like, is he here right now? And yes, it's important. Where is he in the midst of all these things that happen around the world? But, but, but where is he right now? Like, I want to feel him. I want to see him. I want to sense his presence. And so it's because of this that we're actually walking through parts of the book of Daniel. We're doing this series on foreigners, and we're asking the question, where is God and what is he doing in the midst of all of this brokenness and hopelessness that exists in our world? And so if you've been with us, you've known that for the past couple of weeks, we've been working through the beginning chapters of Daniel. And today I'm picking up on the second half of chapter 3, where Vijay left off. Last week. And so um, we're right in the middle of a pretty remarkable story. And the, all of Daniel is a pretty remarkable story, actually. Um, but Vijay left me the good part, is how I feel about this passage, because I get to talk about the climax of this remarkable story where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three faithful men, are thrown into a fire. Now, to give us a little bit of context, to tell a little bit of the story, give us a little bit of foundation, we have to understand what's happening in the bigger, broader story so we, we really do get. The, the, the weight and how paramount the climax of this story truly is. And so as a bit of a recap, a few weeks ago, um, if you were with us, if not, you're going to have to go online and check out the video or the podcast link there. We talked about King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's woken up in the middle of the night after having this tremendously terrifying dream, so terrifying that he doesn't even know how to understand it. And he calls in his wisest advisors, and he says, come in, I want you to explain to me what my dream is, and then I want you to interpret what it meant. And in the dream... Nebuchadnezzar's looking out and before him he sees this incredibly large tower and and this tower is made up of various materials and each portion of of this tower represents essentially a historical timeline saying that these are all the kingdoms, the most powerful kingdoms that will ever rule on this earth and Nebuchadnezzar is the head made of gold. He is the number one most powerful and influential kingdom that will reign on the earth. And as he's looking at this tower, a rock comes in, if you remember, and smashes the tower in the feet and the entire thing falls apart. And ultimately this dream was to um, function as a, uh, a warning for Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel interprets it for him, he says, that rock is not a rock that's cut by any human hand. This rock represents the kingdom of God. It's something completely otherworldly that is going to come in, is going to smash the tower to bits. And so if Nebuchadnezzar's paying attention, he knows that this tower is actually a picture of his life. It's a picture of his kingdom. It's saying the time is ticking on your leadership and it's going to be over because a bigger kingdom is going to come in, a better kingdom is going to come in and smash it to bits. And so here we are, a little while longer, a little while later, and Nebuchadnezzar has literally built a tower of gold, right? <laughs> and it's a big tower, really big, 90 feet tall by, 90, by 9 feet wide. That might not seem too impressive to us now, but made of pure gold, given the timeline, that's pretty remarkable. He builds a literal tower, and so if you're like me, you're probably thinking, like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, is he even paying attention? That was a pretty significant warning he was given. God told him something amazing about history and about his life. And, like, what? Are you really? Uh, to which I say a couple of things. First thing, historically, it's very common for leaders and rulers and authoritative people of all sorts to build towers or statues or monuments um, around their kingdom so people will be reminded of the greatness of their leadership, right? So, Mount Rushmore in the States, or if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., Right? Uh, in Mongolia, there's the Genghis Khan uh, equestrian statue, this gigantic 40-meter-high statue of Genghis Khan riding on a horse. Right? In most of the cities in the world, there are Trump Towers. A little bit of a different thing. But still the idea that leaders want to build towers. They want people to look at their name. They want people to remember who they are, see their influence, and, and be reminded of that. And so what does that tell us about Nebuchadnezzar? That he kind of fits just right into the historical timeline of how leaders ruled. Now, you might also be thinking, well, okay, this warning from God at the end of that story, he actually falls prostrate, falls on his face and worships the God of Daniel and says that only the God in heaven, only Daniel's God could ever explain to us what this, what this dream could have meant. He's like spared me. And it almost seems like repentance, right? It almost seems like true, true faith. And, and we might be saying, Nebuchadnezzar, like, are you not paying attention? But like, if we're just, again, let's be honest, a little bit of self-diagnosis. How many times have we prayed? ask God for forgiveness, repentant of something. God, I will never do that again. And then we turn and do that exact same thing again. So maybe we've got to be paying attention to Nebuchadnezzar. He may be reminding us of who we are and some work that we need to do. But I want to suggest to you another option. That this tower that Nebuchadnezzar built might actually be, uh, might actually give us a glimpse into how wise and how smart a king he actually was. I want us to think about this for a moment. So, when we stepped into our story today, as Dave read it, we, we, we jump right into the condemnation, right? It says in verse 13, or excuse me, 14 and 15, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now then, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the lyre, the lyre, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Now this is the second warning. He had already said, chapter 3 started, which Vijay covered last week. He invites all sorts of people and a tremendous list of leaders and authoritative and influential people. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials. Just this big catch-all phrase to say all the important ruling people are there. And they all gather. And he says, when you... He actually says, a herald say on his behalf. When you hear the flute, the lither, the, the lither, the zither, the, all those instruments, the zither, the lyre... The harp, the pipe, when you hear all these instruments going off, that's your cue. You bow down, you worship my image of gold, but if you don't, immediately you'll be thrown into the furnace, right? That's the threat. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not bowed down, and that's where we're picking up on our story. And just to talk for a second, like we might be asking, what's the deal with all these lists? Like why? What's with the repetition? Like there's 30 verses in this entire chapter, and like 900 of those words are the same words. It's all zither, or whatever it is. Right? Like, what's the deal there? It could be literary, right? Maybe it was a literary style. Maybe that's how uh, Daniel, as he wrote this, was recording history. We could say maybe it was something that, just in the way that it translated from the original language to now, but that's not actually what it is. Instead, what it is, is we're getting this picture that Nebuchadnezzar had invited the entire world as he knew it to come and bow down to his statue. So leaders, satraps, uh, uh, what are they called? Um, Governors, prefects, advisors, all of these people from all over the place, ruling in all sorts of different micro-kingdoms compared to Babylon. Come and bow down to my statue. And the cue to bow down is going to be when you hear all of these instruments which tell of the cultures and the countries that are represented here. So remember, I suggested to you that perhaps the tower or the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built is actually um, telling us of how wise a king he was. In the dream, if you remember, where did the rock strike? It struck the feet, and what were the feet made of? Iron mixed with clay. And as Daniel interprets it, he said, "This is a kingdom that has some strength, but ultimately it's brittle because it's a kingdom divided against itself. The rock strikes the weakest link. The kingdom that comes in, the kingdom to rule all kingdoms, strikes the weakest link. Nebuchadnezzar." hears the dream and says, well, if it's going to strike the weakest link, I'm going to ensure there is no divided kingdom, that we're all united. And how are we going to be united? By worshiping the golden image that I've built. Maybe he's smarter than we think. Maybe there's something to this guy, right? And we're always making fun of him for all the craziness. But maybe there's something to him, or maybe his advisors were able to give him some good help. Essentially, he's saying, I saw this dream, a picture of history as it will play out, And I'm going to change the course of history. There will be no weak link. There will be no other kingdom that can come in and divide us because we will be completely united. Bow down, worship the statue, or be thrown into the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace, right? Facing the furnace is what we've called this message today. That's what we're talking about. That's what these guys are up against. Again, the furnace is just another picture of how Nebuchadnezzar was just like every other king in his day. If you want to, you can go read Jeremiah chapter 29, and you're going to read to 29 verse 11, for I know the plans. It's printed on all the mugs. You probably have a shirt or a poster or something. But like a couple of verses later, in verse 22, it talks about how Nebuchadnezzar actually threw a guy named Zedekiah and a guy named Ahab into the fire. So really what this tells us is Nebuchadnezzar is not really he's as wise as he may be. He's not an original king. He's just doing everything everyone else does. He builds towers, executes people, think people he thinks are delinquents, whatever. That's what we're facing, the furnace, the trumpet's blast. People bow down, except for three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down. When the astrologers come to Nebuchadnezzar to say everyone's bowing down, except for some Jews, right? It says there are some Jews who who refuse to worship your gods or refuse to bow down before your statue. These are the three Jews that we're talking about. When I think about that idea of some Jews, it raises the question, maybe though there were some Jews that did bow down. Maybe there were others that were taken along with Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who did compromise, who did give up on their faith in God, and they just listened because they wanted to spare their lives. But these three, they were different. They weren't going to bow down. They risk it all. They're facing this life and death situation. These astrologers come and rat them out and Nebuchadnezzar brings them into his presence and he says, is it true that you won't bow down? And we enter into this conversation, right? Now, the original charge from the herald was if you don't bow down, immediately you'll be thrown in, no questions asked. But Nebuchadnezzar actually asks them a question. Is it true that you won't bow down? So this shows maybe either Nebuchadnezzar had a teeny tiny bit of mercy and compassion or perhaps he had seen what The God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had done before and he wants to give them another chance to kind of just enter into all of this. He gives them a chance there. They have a chance now. Am I going to go back on my word? Are we now that we can feel the heat from this fire actually coming? Are we going to like change our minds about this? Or are we going to worship the true God? If you don't bow down, he says in verse 15. Look at the wording here. If you do not bow down, you'll be put into the furnace and then what God Will be able to rescue you. Love this guy for setting the table, right? Then what God will be able to save you, and their response cannot be overlooked. Their response is significant for the for the story that's being told here, but the 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 response is also significant because it answers the question that we're asking: Where is God in the middle of the pain and the suffering? Their response answers this question, what does it mean to have faith when it looks like the situation is hopeless? Where is God when it looks like I have no chance and there's no opportunity of escape? King Nebuchadnezzar, they respond. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand but even if he does not we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of god uh, the image of gold you have set up Can we just sit in that for a second Can you just feel the weight of the circumstance facing the furnace feeling the heat no escape they know what this king is like. They've seen him execute other people. He's tried to execute them. And here they are. And they say to his face, It doesn't matter how hard you try, you're never gonna make us bow down. It's like they're saying, what they're saying to Nebuchadnezzar is actually the, the fruit or, or or the the result of lots and lots of time in prayer. Because it's almost as if they're saying, God, we know you can do this. We know you can rescue us from this situation. You've rescued us before. We've heard stories of how you've rescued other people. We've learned that through our faith. We know that you have the ability to do this. You have the power to do this. But if you don't, if you don't rescue us, God, we're, we're still going to trust you. We're still going to believe you. We're going to believe in you. We're going we're gonna to wait on you. And so the heat gets turned up seven times hotter than usual. Seven, that magical biblical number, right? Seven times hotter. Nebuchadnezzar orders his strongest soldiers, which also shows the irony and the stupidity of his kingship because these guys had completely submitted to what was going to take place, but he still decides he's going to get his strongest soldiers, the best ones. and He ties them up. They're not fighting back. They're like, hey, you, like I mean, I'm going, right? <laughs> they tie them up. And then the foolishness of the whole thing is that the fire's so hot that when they throw them in, even the guards burn up. And he loses his best men in the process. Man, the downward spiral of, and the foolishness of not trusting God, right? And so they're thrown into the fire, bound up, and we're left with this question, why did God not intervene? Why didn't he do something? Why didn't he stop? Now, for us, we look at the story knowing how it ends, right? But put yourself in the story for a minute, not knowing how history was going to play itself out at the time the question, where is God? Why isn't he intervening? Could could God have stopped the situation? Yeah. Could God have extinguished the fire? Of course he could have. But instead, they're thrown in. And so as we think about our own circumstances, our own suffering, our own trials, our own challenges, we might be asking the question, like, why is this happening? What's going on? We might be thinking, like, has God abandoned us? We might be thinking, is it God's will that I would endure this? We would be thinking, did God, did God orchestrate this situation that I'm going through right now? We've got all of these important and big questions and we want to know the answers to these questions. But the truth is we can't know. We can't know what God is up to in things like this. If we did, we'd be God and that would make him anything but. And so we can't know. Besides, in a similar way, if we had some any time, you might know this. Anytime someone said, Well, it's just part of God's plan, you've almost felt, and I felt like it's just an explaining away of the circumstance, right? This too shall pass kind of idea. Besides, I don't even think that's the most important question. I think the question we might want to know the answer to is where is God when I'm in the fire? Like, like, has he left? Me? Where is God? Has he forgotten about me? Like, like, where is he? Not why is this happening, but where is he? And where is he when I'm in the fire? To answer that question, he's in the fire with you. He's right there. Like all of us, Nebuchadnezzar's mind is blown. He jumps out of his seat in amazement. What a dramatic fellow. And, and it says that he's amazed to see four men walking around in the furnace. And so who's this fourth person? He threw three in. There's four guys in there and they're walking around even like they've got that's how big it was. They've got the time to walk around. And maybe we lose something in the interpretation, but Nebuchadnezzar says either one of these two things, it looks like a son of the gods or it looks like the son of God. Now now follow me here. Nebuchadnezzar would have had no idea of this idea of the the holy trinity. Father the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He would have had no idea that one day God would be put on flesh and would walk on earth, that Jesus Christ would walk on earth. The only glimpse he had of that was that rock. And he maybe found that out eventually and put that all together. But at this time, historically, he had no idea. Yet, that's what makes his exclamation so much greater because he's saying it's like the Son of God is walking around in there with them. Which is why I believe with every part of my being that Jesus was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They call this a Christophany. Okay, if you're interested in looking up the theological or more technical phrase, they call this a Christophany. Essentially what a Christophany is, is when the pre-incarnate Christ shows up and walks among or, or is in the presence of people. So like to make that really simple, think of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament as a type of timeline, okay? We understand the Bible that in the New Testament, that's when Jesus came, right? He was born of a virgin, like Christmas is coming, we're getting ready for that. We primarily focus on the incarnation of Christ around Christmas time in our, in our tradition. And so we think of it that way. Basically what's happening is that Jesus shows up before he was born, which for some people is like, wait a minute. He didn't come into existence when he was born. He's existed forever and for always and will continue to exist until the end of time. But for some reason, again, we don't know why, he shows up sometimes. And reveals himself. And he's there in the fire, I believe. Why would he allow them to be thrown in the fire then? Because it wasn't until that they were thrown in the fire that they could learn that he'll be with us in the fire. Do you understand that? you follow that? It wasn't until they were thrown in the fire that they could understand that God is with me even when I'm in the fire which helps us understand our own circumstances as well, right? It's not until we're suffering or we're honest about our suffering and our challenges and how difficult parts of our life are or our whole life is. It's not until we're honest about that. It's not until we say, I'm so weak that we can see God show up and be our strength. Could he put out the fire? Yes. Could he stop the situation? Yes. Yes. Could he break the, the, the rope before they even went in and have them run away? Yeah, all that stuff could have happened. But he wanted to give Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego something more, right? He wanted to give them himself. The greatest thing God can do for any one of us in the midst of our darkest experiences is give him, give us himself. The, most, the greatest thing God can do for us in the midst of our darkest experience is give us himself. Those of us who are hurting the most know better than anyone what it means to have that soothing ointment almost or that soothing experience of of knowing God. Those of us who are weaker than anyone else have this uh, intimate and unique way of understanding exactly what it means when God says, I will be your strength. But if we don't accept those circumstances, then we don't give the opportunity to, to experience something so much better. Those who are facing their greatest trials, the biggest parts of the biggest uh, experiences of difficulty whatever it may be know more than anyone i can't get out of this i can't rescue myself the only way out is if god shows up and does something and so these guys shadrach meshach and abednego they were able to interact with god in a, u- in a unique way because they accepted their circumstance right because their faith, they put their faith in god and not just the outcome of their situation that that their situation would go the way they wanted it, right? Maybe they wanted to be rescued from the fire. Maybe they wanted the king to just his whole kingdom to crumble already. Maybe they thought the dream meant it was going to crumble before this golden image was even crafted, right? But he hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't shown up, he hadn't shown up in that sense. And yet here they are in the fire, and, and, and there he is. Because they didn't take things into their own hands. And so sometimes we feel like we're in the darkest, deepest pit, so deep down in this hole of depression or, or, or so deep down in this hole of loneliness, or, or so deep down in this hole of abandonment, so du- deep that it's, it's darkness all around us. And we have this idea that Jesus is somewhere outside of this hole, walking around, waiting for us to climb ourselves out of the hole. He's right? like, hey, whenever you're ready, I'm up here. So yeah. We might have that picture of Jesus. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus isn't even handing us a rope or a ladder. Jesus is lowering a ladder, and then he's jumping in the hole. <laughs> and he's putting his arms around us, and he's saying, I'm actually right here with you. And and eventually, if the time comes that we are to be rescued from that pit while we live our life on earth, we're actually not climbing up the ladder ourselves. Jesus is somehow strapping us to his back and climbing the ladder using his strength for us because we know we couldn't do it. But we don't know that until we accept that we're in this hole and there's no way out other than calling on God. And you know what? There's even this other thing. It may very well be that God's will is that you spend the rest of your life on earth in that hole. And if that's true, then the promise is still true that Jesus is in there the whole time with you. He's not coming up and down. He's in there, and he's in that till the very end. It's in the most difficult and challenging times in our lives that we get to see just how strong Jesus is. This is, of course, if your faith is not based solely on the outcome. And sometimes when we pray, sometimes when we exercise faith, we're just concerned about how things are going to work out. God, I have a few ideas, but you know what, I'm going to let you pick the best of them. And you just, whatever you need to do, you work that out and we're just going to be real great about that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it wasn't the case. They had more faith in the object of their faith than the outcome of their faith. Because ultimately what they were saying is, God, we know you can do this, but even if you don't, We just want to make sure we still get you. (laughs) And there's a question for all of us. Do you want God more than you want the things God can give? Right? So there's one preacher who, and maybe like a million preachers, that have all stolen it off that original guy. Nobody even knows who said it first. This idea of like, do you want, like if you could have all the blessing and all the gift and all the joy of what were promised in heaven, but when you got there, Jesus wasn't there, would you still want it? And so if we're flipping this question around, basically what we're saying is like, you've already got Jesus right now in the darkness of all. So I know it's hard, and I'm not saying any of this is easy, but, but how much greater will it be later when we're rescued from it completely but the whole time we've had him? It's well, like it gets better because we know that we have his presence with us right now. Do you want the gifts or do you want the giver? So Of course God could have rescued them, but he wanted to give them himself. It's true that he probably wants to do that for you too. I believe that he wants to do that for you too. And I don't know what you're sitting in. I don't know if it's like a mental health issue or if it's a physical ailment or if it's a job situation or if it's your marriage or it's a other complication relationally. I don't, I don't know what it is where you're feeling that confusion, where you're feeling that abandonment, where you're feeling left like you're all alone. But listen to me, friends. You're not alone. Jesus is there. This part of the story wraps up with kind of similar to the way that chapter two wraps up actually. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, right? And he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, there's four of them in there. And then he says, guys, come out of there. And so they walk out of there. The ropes are all burned off, but they're not burned. And they walk out. They don't even smell like they've had a smoke. They don't smell like anything. They just walk out, right? And when he comes, they look at him, and they know immediately, Nebuchadnezzar knows immediately that only the God of heaven could have rescued them. He sees firsthand that this is not a magic trick that they did not deceive him, that the only way he was going to be rescued was if their God showed up. And so when they come out, that's when, he, ex- that's when he, he again worships. And he gives this incredible thing. He says later on in verse 29, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then he threatens to cut them up in piles of rubble again. Um, and he says, I- I'm putting a decree out that you can't speak against them or I'll kill you because no other God can save This way. So again, he's confessing something, right? And here's the thing: we know no, there's no other way out of our circumstance other than God who saved us. So if you're saying, Yeah, I was able to, you know, I got myself out of bed this morning, did you actually really get yourself up out of bed this morning? Or did God somehow miraculously come alongside and be your strength? And so those of us who are suffering who are struggling, who are in trials, who feel like we're being challenged beyond anything we could ever handle, right? When people do look at us and they understand or come to understand what our lives might be like and they see that we are still able to be move forward, they're gonna know that it's not us. The glory is gonna be on God. The attention's gonna be on God. And that ought to be our testimony too. I got out of bed today because God pulled me out of bed, right? Because God walked with me into that meeting because I know that Jesus was with me in this conversation. But growing up, I heard this story, no idea how many times, a lot of times. And every time I heard this story told, it was always based around a big challenge to go and take a great risk of faith, right? So, so we've heard about the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You need to go on that short-term missions trip. As a kid, you're like, yeah! Wait, is there fire there? Hold on. Like, or, or you're told, like, you need to go and have that hard conversation, right? Take this big... Risk of faith. And I think there's an angle. We can understand this passage as an encouragement for that. But more so as I've studied this, I've learned that sometimes the greatest act of faith doesn't require doing anything other than accepting the situation you're in and knowing that Jesus is in there with you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Right? You know pain. You know suffering. You know longing. You know abandonment. You know loneliness. And I want to just encourage you, you just got to pray to him. And prayer might even sound like a weird idea, but just think about that stuff as if there's a guy named Jesus close by. Because he hears you, he listens to you, and you're going to begin to experience the strength that he gives, the gift that he gives. What do we do from here? How do we kind of, like practically, how do we, what do we do with all this? I'm going to put a phrase on the screen. I want you to think about your own life and your own circumstance, and I want you to fill in that blank. God, God, I believe you can rescue me from blank. God in heaven, I believe you can rescue me from blank. Do you believe it? Have you seen him do work in other places, in your own life, in the lives of others? You've heard stories. God, I believe you can do this. You can rescue me from blank. Maybe you want to jot it into the margin of your Bible or on a pad of paper, whatever. And then I want you to complete this prayer with this second part of the phrase. But even if you don't, help me to know that you're with me. Friends, if I can be frank, the second part of this statement is where the real faith lies. Yes, we ask God to do miracles. Yes, we wait on him to do unbelievable things that we've never even dreamed of or imagined. But do we have the same amount of faith in the instance that he doesn't? Do we have the confidence that his promise is still true, that he's with us? I want you to also think about who is at least one other person you can pray this prayer with We're not doing this on our own. God has given us the gift of a community, other people, whether it's a home group, whether it's the person you sit with here on a weekly basis, a Christian from another place, whatever it is. Who are you going to pray this prayer with? And that, that means two things, really. The first thing it means is that you need to be courageous. You need to be open. You need to be honest with yourself. You need to be willing to share these things with others. It also means that you need to be the type of person that's willing to receive and hear without judgment and walk into the mess with them. God gave us each other. As a gift, and then I want you even to go one step a little bit further and think about who can you pray this for. Is there someone that you know that is just being consumed by their life circumstance right now, that the only way they're going to be brought out of this is if God Himself intervenes? Pray that. Be be aware though of the order I gave you the instructions. Where do you need to pray it? Who do you need to pray it with? And then who do you need to pray it for? Don't jump straight to the who do I need to pray it for and take the attention off yourself. No, no, God's in the fire with you. Do you see them? So we're going to move into uh, communion now. Bread in the the cup. And what communion is, is this remarkable, constant, ongoing reminder that God has put, like God is true to his word. That God keeps his promise. that, That even in the midst of Darkness and having to endure through pain and and through suffering that there is this God who shows up at the right time who who comes in who climbs into the pit with us And, and like it is not easy to talk about enduring through pain and difficulty it's not even easy to do those things it's not even easy to talk about them yet communion gives us this reminder that there's hope in the middle of all of it right so Jesus we have this picture of him on the cross hanging there Right? It's the ultimate picture of weakness. It's the ultimate picture of frailty. Even as people walk by, they say, if you're God, get off. Come off there. Like If you are who you say you are, and yet he doesn't climb off, he endures it. Right, He stays there. And while he's up there, he's praying forgiveness over the people that are, that are judging him. It's this picture of frailty. It's this picture of enduring something so painful and so deep that could there have been any, any other way? He would have wanted it another way. And I don't just make that up. He prayed this himself. Before Jesus was arrested and and, and led to, before he was betrayed and then arrested and led to his ultimate execution, he prays this in Luke 22, verse 42 Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But then what does he say? Not my will be done, your will be done. Again, God, if there's any other way, Father in heaven, Jesus is praying this, right? A picture of his humanity. If Jesus has ever been more relatable, I can't think of any time when he's been more relatable than right now in these words. Father, if there's any other way we can go about doing this, I know you've got a plan, God, in heaven. I know that you want to rescue humanity. I know that you want to save them from their sin because they don't know their right hand from their left. They're so upside down and backwards. God, I know you want to do this, but like, if there's any other way we could do this, could you do it that way? If there's any other way that I don't need to absorb uh, your judgment and your wrath, if there's any other way that I don't need to give my life in this way, like, could you do that, God? If there's any other way, here in maybe even your own prayer, God, if there's any other way I can go about this life than living in this depression, if there's any other way I can go without this physical ailment, if there's any other way, God, could you please just do that? But, the prayer prayer of faith, but ultimately, your will be done. Your will be done. God, I trust you more than I trust myself. And so it's because Jesus came it's because Jesus lived a perfect and holy life. It's because he, he um, died on the cross and it's because he resurrected from the dead on the third day, just as his father in heaven promised would happen. It's because he did this in our place for us. It's because of the power of the resurrection that we have confidence that everything else I already said is totally true. That he's in the pit because he went into the pit. He knows the pit. He knows the darkness. He knows the pain, but he also knows the power of the resurrection. And he brings that power of the resurrection into your circumstance with you. He's there in the fire with you. And it's when we accept the reality of how frail we are, it's when we accept the fire that we're living in, knowing that Jesus is with us, that we can truly live. So you might feel like you're dying every single day. But if you're with Jesus and he's with you and you're putting your hope in how this is going to turn out, then you're actually living.